What is a good death, and how do we define it? This is something I've been thinking a lot about lately. So as I begin to wind down this podcast, I reached out to Dr. Anetta Mallon, an end-of-life consultant or death doula, and together we explore the narrative of a good death. What are the benefits of talking about death in this way? And what are the potential unintended consequences? Aneta is from Australia. So before this interview, I was thinking about what's for dinner, and she was getting her morning cup of tea. And just in case you're not familiar with what an end-of-life consultant is, an end-of-life consultant is a non-medical support person. They can help with advanced care planning, planning funerals and ceremonies, holding space for people to say what they need to say at the end of life, sitting vigil, providing emotional support to the person dying and to their family and friends. So Aneta does all of this and more. When you're at a dinner party and someone asks you about what you do for work, what do you say to that question? The first thing I do is laugh because I actually do several things. I wear a lot of hats. Um, But the elevator pitch version would be I'm an end-of-life consultant, educator, researcher, and grief psychotherapist. I don't tend to mention that I'm also a university academic, but I also do that. Uh Uh-huh. What are people's initial responses? Well, people are very curious. Oh, what's that? And by giving sort of three or four different categories, because sometimes I put in research or sometimes I don't, depends on the tone of the dinner party and who's there. Um, People have a couple of different things that they can grab hold of. So if they're interested in learning, they'll probably go for educator, what's an end-of-life consultant, um, is a psychotherapist like a counsellor? Yes, it is. Spoiler alert, it is. Mm -hmm. If people then say, oh, and change the subject, they really don't want to know and that's fine. But if there's an aspect of what I do or what they think I look like I do, because I don't necessarily look like a death positive person. I don't always wear black. I've got really big curly hair. I'm generally wearing glitter. Um, (laughs) And so (laughs) it's because why shouldn't this be fun? Why can't we have um, some giggles and some laughters and some joy while we're talking about end of life? Because that's part of life too. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, and so what led you to this work? And I know we're going to be mainly talking about your end-of-life consultant work, and I'm curious, what led you to this? It's it's actually a really interesting story, and it's only in the last year or so that as I answer this question more and more frequently that I realize actually my whole life has been building towards this, and I find that interesting. Mm. Uh, A long, long time ago, several hundred years ago when I was in my 20s, I was a birth doula once. And it it was lovely. Uh, It was a young couple. It was a home birth in the water. There was a lovely midwife there. 
And I was the non-medical support person that the mother had asked to have for support. She had approached me personally and said, will you do this? And I was toying with the idea of studying to be a midwife. And I went through this process that was an extraordinary transition. There is an extraordinary energy when a new human comes into the world. And I didn't realize that. But that's the only time I've ever been a birth doula. And shortly after that, I shifted my focus and became a somatic psychotherapist. So I was combining body work with talking therapy. Mm -hmm. And I specialized in injury and trauma recovery and grief and loss and personal growth and development. And I worked with people who'd had surgeries go wrong or life-changing car accidents or they're recovering from grief or PTSD at work. Um, so I was working with law enforcement and first responders and military and people who'd survived really horrible childhoods. Uh, eventually I stopped doing body work because my hands got tired and just became more and more in psychotherapy. I really specialized in injury, trauma and death hmm. and grief. And then I went back to university and I have, I'm quite an academic slut. I have a a bachelor's degree in fine art. I have a master of art therapy and I have a bachelor first class honors and a PhD in social science. Mm -hmm. And I began lecturing and tutoring and teaching for the university, gosh, over a, over, well over a decade ago. And a lot of what I was doing was about health sociology and end of life and families. And I was drawn more and more and more into what was happening around death and dying because I've always been drawn to the stuff we don't talk about. Yeah. Um, I'm very interested in why we're so prudish about sex and sexuality for the same reasons that I'm, I'm very curious about why we're so prudish and squeamish about death mm -hmm. because for almost all of us, sex and sexuality is a very important part of our identity. Although I would also argue that even when you're asexual, that's still an important part of your identity because you identify in a particular way. And sex and death are really, for me, kind of linked in, in a funny kind of way. You know, we say sex and you get pregnant. You say death and you die. We've got these very odd inbuilt superstitions that don't serve us. And I've checked. It's a 10 out of 10 stat. Everybody dies. So why <laughs> isn't this a normal? <laughs> I know, right? Yeah. So why isn't this a normal part of our everyday conversation? Why are we not teaching this in an age-appropriate way, of course, in schools. Why is this not more of a part of any tertiary curriculum that we have? Why do we not have this, these discussions in the workplace? Why don't we have plans in the workplace for commemorative or reflective moments that kind of act like business funerals in a way when someone in the workplace has died? Mm -hmm. So it all, all of my training and education and skill set and interest didn't necessarily make any sense until I put end of life in the middle of it and then mm. everything came together. And so when you have someone that seeks out your services as an end of life consultant, like someone who has a diagnosis, um, a terminal diagnosis, what are some of the 
first questions that you might ask that person? The very first thing I would say is, thank you very much for choosing me to work with you. Mm. And then I would ask, so how are you? Because that's a, a really profound and important question. And it often gets lost in the noise. I make space for someone to tell me if they're tired, if they're angry, if they're numb, if they're confused. Because until I understand how they're feeling, I don't know how to frame questions. I mean, it's helpful for me to have certain sets of information, but it's not helpful for me to sit down with a clipboard and a piece of paper and say, right, we're going to go through this and you are going to tell me everything I want to know in a particular order. Mm -hmm. Because generally if, if someone comes and they have a diagnosis, which is different to someone who comes to me and says, I'm fine, but I want to do my planning. Mm -hmm. completely different approach, completely different how are you sort of question. I'm probably going to get a different response. I need to be able to meet that person where they are in the moment, find out what they need, find out what's important to them. Then I can position myself to the best of my capacity to, to be there in a way that's meaningful and useful for that person. Otherwise, what am I doing there? Mm -hmm. It is always about, always about the person I'm working with. So my first question is, and that's interesting. Big, thank you. That's an interesting question because I hadn't thought about it. But my first question <laughs> is always, so how are you? Yeah. How are you doing? Yeah. Well, it seems so simple, but it, it you learn so much by just asking that question. Yes. And we tend to throw it away. Like, how are you? I, I really don't want to know. This is just a social protocol I'm following. But it's a profoundly important question. Yeah, I agree. And um, I think another question that sometimes gets asked, and I want to talk a bit about this, is this concept of a good death. And I want to talk about it because this is a question I've asked this variation of the question, what does a good death look like to you? To a lot of the people I've interviewed who maybe have months to potentially years to live. And I've just been thinking about this question a lot lately. And just the more I think about the term a good death, the more questions I have. So I think there are a lot of layers to it that we could talk about. So what do you think about the phrase a good death? And what does it mean to you? It means something I run from screaming with my hair on fire, and I'm very attached to my hair. Mm. Um, <laughs> Tell me about reason... that. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that I say I run screaming from it is because we live in a very competitive culture at the moment mm. in the Western English-speaking world. Mm -hmm. We've got to be the thinnest and the whitest and the tallest and the youngest and the most airbrushed and, and have the biggest number of followers and be the whateverest. So there is an awful lot of performativity where we are focused on what we are performing. And excuse me for sounding a little bit like an academic wanker, but for me, that phrase performativity, which we use a lot in sociology, is um, it really nails it. It bothers me and I really 
try to avoid using it because it seems to place yet another burden of responsibility and expectation on the person who's dying. And the work of dying, it seems to me, is enough. Hmm. The, the ability to get your strength in a place where you can enjoy the pleasures you have in life, whether that's chocolate ice cream or sitting in the sun with your dog or spending time with your children and grandchildren or just being able to be quiet and read a book or look back through photographs, whatever, whatever it is that brings you pleasure. And your energy may be quite limited. Sometimes that comes and goes. Sometimes that's a just a baseline. So why on earth would I put pressure on people to A, make them think about what they look like from the outside in, hmm. which is what a performance does. We're not actually having our own lived experience. We're sort of using an external gaze to say, am I doing it right? Is my death good enough yet? Am I good enough yet? Mm. And I, I hate that. I know hate is a really strong word, but honestly, Alexandra, I hate that. I'm interested in and dedicated to trying to support people and advocating for people to have the best possible death for them. Mm -hmm. And I think that as a culture and a society, we can certainly do death better, but I'm not at all interested in um, a good death. Mm -hmm. Well, I appreciate you sharing that perspective because I have thought a lot about why I like to ask that question. And I think for one, I'm just really curious about what people have to say because I think it can sometimes show what really matters to a person or what brings them comfort. And I'm also curious whether people actually think about that um, or want to go there. But in general, I think my hope is that maybe if we all talk about more of what is a good death to us, then perhaps maybe it's more likely that it will happen. But do you find that to be true when people talk more about what they hope their death looks like? Is there a more possibility that it's going to happen? Oh, absolutely, yes. Hmm. And I say absolutely yes in a firm, clear voice because if they're talking about it, they've planned for it and people know what they want. And if I may, I just want to add something to me running screaming from a good death. I'm doing air quotes, but of course you can't see that. Don't forget, I'm not the person having the death. It's not my death. Mm. So... As someone who is a non-medical support person, whether that's a planner or end-of-life doula or advocate or educator, whatever hat or set of hats I'm wearing for people in that moment, I never think it's about me telling someone how their death should be. Mm. But I do encourage people to talk about what a good death looks like for them because that's their experience. I'm not trying to tell them what to do. So in a sense, it's sort of the insider-outsider yeah. perspectives. And I try really hard not to be that person that comes in from the that comes over from the outside and says, do it this way. Mm -hmm. But I do love the way. I really, really appreciate the way you are asking the question because you are helping to support and open up 
death positive conversations, increasing people's death literacy, helping people, giving them permission to begin to talk about and think about what a good death for them looks like. And that's invaluable. Well, thank you for saying that. And I wonder how you have these conversations with people. I mean, do you have any sort of alternatives that you ask, like instead of what does a good death look like to you or what what sort of questions do you ask to get at that same feeling? Well, first of all, um, I, I do the very sensible thing that many cultures do, which is make sure we've got something sweet to eat around us. We uh. need liquid. <laughs> I, this is really important. We need liquid because not only does sometimes talking about the important stuff make us a little bit stressed so we can feel dehydrated having something to drink can also give us a physical pause to take Mm. a moment while we think and having something sweet literally sweetening our words taking a moment feeling special because sweetness is always part of positive celebration so you know have biscuits have cake Mm, i love that (laughs) you know go to the ice cream parlor if you need to (laughs) and i ask people what i can do for them because that's really important. Mm-hmm. I might think I know what I'm there for and I might, I'm might i perfectly entitled to be wrong and I have been in the past and no doubt I will be again in the future. So I'm always checking in. But if someone says I, I need to get things sorted or I'm not sure what to do, I always go to planning documents. And Not that we might do planning documents on the first Um, session unless someone's come to me for planning I prefer to give people a little bit to think about and a little bit to get their ducks in a row before we sit down and do that makes it much faster and planning is not a one session thing anyway my package is um, for clients who want to work with me it's three one-hour calls with me either on the phone or video call if you don't live close to me and I can't meet with you face to face, we do it um, virtually and that's fine. But it's it's involved. It's not a, oh, well, this will be 10 minutes and then we can go off and get our nails done. Right. It's something you're thinking about, you know, while you get your nails done, you know, every week for a couple of weeks maybe. Um, I, fi- I, I ask people about their emotional support systems and their physical support systems because um, generally a better death involves open, honest conversations about the important stuff with the people in their lives. Um, If someone would like to die at home, if possible, our research here in Australia shows that's a minimum of 16 people in a compassionate community network to avoid burnout, Mm, usually of a primary carer, but also burning out relationships and you know, business associations, it, it's, and that's 16 people. It doesn't have to be 16 people right there in the room with you. That can be neighbors, colleagues, friends, family. It can be, mm-hmm. it can be a variety of people. Um, someone who likes you but doesn't know you very well who's just happy to come and walk your dog twice a day or feed your cat or someone that's, you know, happy to pick your kids up from soccer practice or drop your groceries off. So the 16 people are contributing, but they're not necessarily right there in the room with you, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Do people have bucket lists? Bit of a cliche, but, you know, is do they want to go to the beach one more time and watch the sunset? 
Okay, mm-hmm. so what are the logistics of making that happen? You know, it's hard cheese at the moment if you really, really, really want to go to Vienna and you happen to live in Australia because planes are not going there at the moment from Australia. So we we have to work around others. Is there a movie you'd like to watch? Is there a meal you'd like to have recreated for you? Um, do you need someone to just sit with you and be silent? So I ask lots of questions and the important conversations don't scare me and have never scared me. And I have a rollicking sense of humor. (laughs) My clients and I laugh a lot. We may be crying and we may have moments of silence, um, but we also laugh because joy and laughter and and playfulness are also part of being human. And it's a lovely thing, I think, to remember that we are fiercely alive until we are dead. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's really beautiful to think about that. And how do you help the people through the moments when the dying process isn't going as everyone had hoped or planned? Because I imagine there are a lot of things that are outside of a person's control um, that could really affect the death. So how do you help people navigate those uncertainties? I honestly like to have had enough time to have talked about the what ifs plan a b c d e plan a is great i'm here for plan a but to use an example someone may be in a good deal of physical pain most deaths are peaceful and that's lovely but with with the best will in the world um pain management does not work for everyone Um, or breathlessness may be something that is concerning either to the person at end of life or to the people around them. And sometimes it is actually a better death for someone to be in a medicalized environment rather than in a home-like environment. So you may end up going to the hospital and dying in the hospital, but you feel more secure because your pain is either managed more effectively or you feel safer. Mm -hmm. And the family may have a burden of, why do I feel resentful because I can't sleep while my parent is dying Mm. because of the sounds they're making or I feel like I should be doing something. And sometimes that is an unconscious or a subconscious narrative that's going on. Mm -hmm. in someone's mind and there's a sort of a shame around admitting that because well I love my parent yes but it's okay to sometimes feel resentful that you don't have any time to yourself Mm -hmm. or should I feel ashamed because I failed I wanted to die at home and and now I'm in the hospital and I actually sort of feel relieved because I don't have to try and manage everything but have I failed no you haven't Mm. failed because we talked about plan B or plan C or whatever whatever option this was. Was this door one, two, three, or four? Well, we've, we've gone through door number three. How do you feel? It's okay to feel relieved. And it's not a failure. Yeah. It's not, it's, it's, it's the way that it happened. And if you feel better about it, great. Mm-hmm. And if you don't feel better about it, okay, well, let's talk about if we can. Let's try and unpack that. And then attempt to make the environment as welcoming and as you as possible. Yeah, that 
the idea of failure, I mean, it's just a really fascinating thing to think about. And because that's what I've, I wonder and worry about sometimes, and you touched on this a little bit with the good death narrative that I would never want a person who is dying to somehow feel like they're failing at dying the good death or that a caregiver isn't doing enough. And have you ever had that experience where either the person who is dying or the caregiver uh, felt in some way responsible for how things were turning out? Sometimes I actually encounter this more with um, medical doctors Mm. um, because we have this long-standing culture where doctors are the equivalent of gods and we have forgotten that doctors today or at least in Australia don't take the Hippocratic Oath anymore it's not do no harm it's actually the Geneva Convention which is about informing your patient of all of their options and then doing your best to support your patient Mm -hmm. and because we have this holdover of do no harm death for doctors is a failure so we have this unnecessary prolongation of life which is not the same as hastening death i want to be really clear about that um and we have in many parts of the world now voluntary assisted dying laws so that's a whole other discussion but the resuscitation that's unnecessary and ignores a dnr the extra drugs to well they have the flu and we can treat the flu with antibiotics yeah but don't Mm -hmm. oh but no no no. we can treat the flu we don't need to treat the pneumonia or the flu Mm -hmm. this person is in very very deep dementia their body's extremely frail they're this is okay it's all right to let them die or it's all right to let them be dying and not necessarily offer peripheral medication because you think you have to cure everything. Death happens. It's a multifaceted or multi-headed cultural narrative that in the way that doctors can't fail, so doctors can't let anyone die, and it's wonderful to see that we're beginning to shift that particular narrative because that's also a huge burden on medical staff it's a huge burden on medical staff especially doctors but then in for non-medical people and this can be um something that family members are very 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 conflicted about but sometimes really good friends um what am i going to do without you if you die not if you die i'm sorry not when you die but if you die Mm -hmm. have i failed what could i have done more i mean we see this Mm. really amplified when there's a suicide death, we see that a lot. What could I have done differently? But I think I think this also ties back to just having the important conversations and being really death literate and being really open about what our priorities and what our boundaries and limits are. Mm-hmm. Because at the moment, I don't think many doctors feel safe when someone dies if they haven't absolutely done everything because are you going to sue me? Are you going to blame me? Are you going to put in a complaint? Mm. And it, it's, it's very hard when I come in sort of last minute. I think when any end-of-life doula or, or end-of-life worker comes in last minute because we maybe haven't had all those conversations. And so it then becomes a matter of if possible and if the family is open to this after someone's death, unpacking um, why they couldn't have done any more, 
why it wasn't necessarily a failure. Mm. Sometimes things go sideways. Sometimes unexpected stuff happens Mm -hmm. um, really quickly. And if there needs to be uh, transportation to a hospital or there needs to be a particular kind of intervention and it, it hasn't been discussed or someone hasn't really wanted to think about it or accept that that might be a reality, that becomes something for them to unpack later. Mm-hmm. I think we're slowly all getting better at it and we've got a long way to go. And sometimes sometimes life just happens. Sometimes death yeah. just happens and it doesn't happen in the way we planned for. Um, I suppose the best analogy would be the other transition. How many women do you know with children who had a birth that went according to their birth plan? How many women with children right. do you know? Like, yes. Oh, we had to do something different. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, just about all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, look, I think our deaths are as unique as our births. Yeah. And it's lovely when we get the, oh, they fell asleep and died in their bed. My spouse actually, his mother had that kind of death. It was really lovely for not so great necessarily for his dad who got up to make her, her morning cup of tea and then didn't discover she was dead until he came back. Mm. she just went to sleep and never woke up some of us do get that most deaths are peaceful but I think it's also about the the whole performativity of life that we have at the moment what else could we have done did I did we ring every single moment of of living out of the did I did I convey everything I wanted to convey did they know everything I wanted them to know they knew it's okay yeah that's what I mean it's a lot of pressure to put on oneself. It's huge. And it's, it's really not helpful. It's, you know, it's, and I don't think it's healthy. So when you hold the, the space for people who are just going through these emotional and sometimes really difficult situations and experiences, how do you come out of that? And how do you take care of yourself? I'm guessing there's laughing and laughing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, um, and crying. But I'm, you know, if I need to cry, I excuse myself. Um, I think really there is nothing more selfish and inappropriate than um, someone who bursts into tears and makes it all about them and they're not closely connected to the person who's just died. Mm. Um, Which is not to say that I don't, when I'm on the phone talking to someone, when a family... um, might call me and let me know that there's been a death I might cry with them you know we might weep a little bit together or and I'm, I'm not saying that I don't if if someone is hugging me I might not cry mm-hmm. we might have those tears together in that shared experience which is partly a release and it's also just partly emotion but if I'm feeling something very powerful I leave the room mm. because that's mine to process it's not mine to be the center of anyone's attention it's not for the family to caretake me mm-hmm. um, I cannot be a good advocate and support I cannot do my job if I'm making it about me I have a very very good peer network of people that I can talk to I also have um, a very good um, clinical supervising psychologist and I can go and pay her and <laughs> talk to her when I need to. And I do that because that's what professionals are for. I actually have um, also um, a friend who's a life coach and sometimes I'll pay her for 
a session. Um, I write. Hmm. Sometimes it's private writing. Sometimes it's on the blog. And I am also, after so many years of being a psychotherapist, I'm very, very good at not taking on other people's stuff. So I know what my boundaries and my caretaking is about. And honestly, I include an awful lot of this in my online training course for that reason, because I don't think we teach or talk about or advocate for caregivers, um, whether that's working privately with um, family or friends because you're doing that, it's, it's a person that you love who's at end of life, or you're someone like me who also does this professionally, um, there's the expectation that, oh, well, you know, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. No, th- we need to have organized strategies, you know, door one, two, three, four, option, you know, A, B, C, D, of self-care. Sometimes I say no to work. I take regular breaks um, and I communicate that. And sometimes it's just a day or two and I'll put up a message on my social saying I'm just having a mental health day mm-hmm. or it will be, um, okay, I'm now, I'm taking a break for a few weeks. And that's part of healthy self-care. And I think that's something that we all need to practice and, but also see modeled around us more often. Yes. Yeah, I agree. Um, what lessons have you learned about living from working with people who are dying? Oh, we are fiercely alive until we are dead. Mm. Um, the whole idea that someone who is actively dying even is gone. Um, nope. <laughs> nope. It makes anticipatory grief quite overwhelming when someone dies at times for clients. So anticipatory grief is the grief we experience because we're trying to manage and control the outcome. And it's really normal and we all do it. I mean, I've done it, everybody. It's a normal thing. It can be particularly challenging in cases of dementia and cognitive decline mm-hmm. because um, you've got someone who's non-responsive and they've been non-verbally responsive for years. And I have had people very confidently assure me, oh, no, I'm fine. I've done all my grieving. I'm Okay. And I just wait because, of course, when death occurs, we're immediately plunged right back into fresh redo from start grief Mm. that will feel very different to the anticipatory grief. And that always surprises people Mm -hmm. because each relationship we have with a person with a being because I I shouldn't say just person because we know that we mourn our animals sometimes more powerfully than we, we grieve and mourn um, our people dying. Um, Each relationship is different. So each grief response to a death is different. It's sometimes surprising how people respond. Mm -hmm. It still surprises me that people get very judgy about, sex at end of life and sex after a death. So particularly women get really judged for when they um, will enter into a new sexual or intimate relationship, whether it's casual or long-term. We have all kinds of ideas about how people should be living their lives, not only while someone is dying, but after someone has died. Mm. 
and it goes well beyond the whole, well, the person's dead, so we can't say anything bad about them. No, that's a lie. We certainly can. We can. It's okay to be honest. It's okay to say, I really didn't like that person. Mm-hmm. They they lied to me or they treated me badly or, you know, they assaulted me when I was a child and I never forgave them. It's so I've, I've learned very quickly to do, you know, when I'm a funeral celebrant, I, I include space for that in a, in a quiet and appropriate way. Uh, but yeah, sometimes that comes out. Always, always double check is another lesson I've learned because sometimes I think I know how someone's responding or what's going on mm-hmm. and I'm rather entertainingly wrong. <laughs> and that's when emotions are high um, and, and time is important, that's really not a great time to be falling over myself and stumbling and apologizing. So ask, don't assume. Mm-hmm. None of us, none of us have as much time as we think we do. Have the important conversations now. Get everything yeah. in writing now and drink the good wine now <laughs> or the good hot chocolate. I mean, whatever works for you. Whatever it is, um, yeah. Yes, if you're listening and you're under the age for drinking, drink the good hot chocolate, <laughs> all of it. Put extra marshmallows in because none of us know how much time we have. Yeah. Well, and I know that you've talked about in the past about just the importance of uh, being open and honest with kids about death. And I'm a mom of young children, so I obviously think about my kids a lot and how I talk to them about death and the questions they ask. And I would just love for you as uh, my last question, just to talk a little bit about talking to kids about death and how you suggest that people do that. This is always an interesting, I get asked this question a lot. Thank you, because I'm child-free by choice. I'm a dog person, mm. so you can hand me your puppy, but don't don't hand me your baby because I probably don't know what to do with them. <laughs> but by the same token, I and children actually generally quite like me, or they're they're kind of fascinated by the scary lady who kind of looks at them sideways and then goes, "Hey, you want a cookie?" Gosh, that probably sounded more creepy than I meant it to. But for kids, my my whole position is I might eat them, but I would never lie to them. <laughs> so ask your child do you, would you like to go to the funeral yeah. because that's a very simple straightforward question and then they go well what's a funeral okay well a funeral is a here's one way you might explain it is a ritual or a celebration we have when someone dies and even though it's sad we want to remember their life and it's, it's, it's okay to laugh or cry or feel your feelings. So there's all kinds of ways that a simple, would you like to go to grandpa's funeral? Or Children are fantastically resilient and kids are far more pragmatic about death than we give them credit for. Don't sit down and expect you're going to have all of the conversation in one hit. You remember that kids will take as much of a bite of that particular cookie. Cookies are showing up a lot. I don't know. Maybe it's time for morning tea at my end. Have a, have a bite of that cookie and then they'll go away. And, and you know, because you're a mother, you're a parent, when your kid wants more information, they'll come back and they'll find a way to ask. Yeah. Or they'll find a way to move back into that conversation. Mm-hmm. But please, please don't lie to them. Um, and let kids change their minds. You know, they might say, no, I don't want to go to the funeral and then you know the next day they might come in and they're wearing a very special pair of shoes and they might say these are the shoes I'm going to wear to grandpa's funeral Hmm. 
listen to what kids are saying and really pay attention to when they've hit a limit because they'll frame it in whatever way they're going to frame it and they'll come back and they'll ask for a top-up when they need it or want it. Ask them how they're feeling. Let them know that their feelings are genuine and valid. And kids may not have huge emotional responses, so please don't project your expectations of what they should be doing. Mm -hmm. You might feel it's very hard to get out of bed because you're so sad and your kids are running around like maniacs and and they want um, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches for lunch again today right. um, and, and you've made something else. They're not you. They had a different relationship with the person who's died. And kids are naturally more resilient. Yeah. They'll feel what they're feeling and then they'll get up and want to, you know, go play Frisbee or, or go play Xbox. And the reason I say, you know, don't lie to your kids is um, I heard a horrible story and it was it sort of resonated with me and stayed with me where I once had a funeral celebrant insist um, that I had to offer people something more, that being an atheist wasn't enough to just say, you know, we, we come from stardust and we go to st from stardust and that's enough because children need more. And she would always tell children that when someone died, they became a butterfly in heaven just from a pure biological step. No, we don't become butterflies when we die to the best of our understanding. I have actually had at least one person come and tell me that they knew a child who had heard that and they developed night terrors about butterfly. Every time they saw a butterfly, they had a panic attack. We have to keep the butterfly alive. We've seen a butterfly, somebody's gonna die. They had night terrors about butterflies and um, couldn't get back to sleep. And it took months to calm this poor child and help them get back into a sleep cycle and help them realize that butterflies are not intrinsically linked to death. Butterflies are not terrifying, dangerous creatures. So children can be really concrete in their thinking and we don't know what that's going to become for the way that they experience the world. So this is why I think just a calm and pragmatic, well, they've died. It's what happens at the end of life. Mm -hmm. um, there are wonderful children's books that have been written that are fabulous resources. Um, you can take your child to a death cafe so Death Cafe is a worldwide movement where without an agenda um, or any branding except Death Cafe, people can just go and talk and ask questions and listen to other people just having conversations about death and dying. There's a lovely thing that, um, that some people do when they come across a dead bird or a dead animal on a nature walk or even by the side of the road when they're driving, they stop and put flowers or stones and pebbles around or over the mm. body so that there's a little ritual and a, a little ceremony and a recognition that life has ended. Mm. And that can be a very inclusive, gentle and loving way to introduce children to the idea that there is an honouring, there is usually an honouring when there is a death and that death happens, it's normal, and a moment of quiet reflection and then you get on with your day. When your child's ready, they'll ask you about that. Sometimes um, allowing children to be silent is a great way to open a space for conversation. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you so much for 
sharing that. And just thank you so much for this whole conversation today. It's just been such a joy. And for me, um, I've really enjoyed your questions because you make me think, and I love that. (laughs) Well, you've made me think today too, and I love that. So we're a good match. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you very, very much, Alexandra. It's been a pleasure to be here. So going back to the how do we define a good death question, maybe it's less about how we define it in general and more about how does each person define their own best possible death? And then what's plan B? And plan C? And then maybe plan D? This is what I'm good at. Contingency plans. I'm really good at imagining things that might go wrong. I've talked about my good death in previous episodes, but if I can't be in the desert with the sun shining, resting on a bed, with peach-colored sheets, with my husband Eric reading to me, and my kids playing outside somewhere, then I think I'll really just take whatever would be the least traumatic for my family as possible. Just please make sure my feet aren't cold. I really hate that. My conversation with Annetta also made me think about how do we continue to create better systems to help people with their dying process? So the weight of the good death doesn't fall on the individual. Thanks again to Anetta for expanding my thinking about these topics, for the good conversation, and also for the tips about how to talk to kids about death. If you'd like to learn more about Anetta, get online and check out Gentle Death Education and Planning with Dr. Anetta Mallon. In the next episode, you'll hear me and my almost five-year-old son talk about death, and Curious George. Until next time, thank you so much for listening. I'm Alexandra, and this is Six Months or Less.